Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. We are back with Mike Kottmeyer for the second of our six interviews following up on the business drivers or the drivers of business agility. So, Mike, thank you for yeah. taking time out of the day. Happy to be here as always, Dave. Good and we are here for the very hot and sexy topic of quality today. Yes, yeah, my least favorite of the six business drivers to talk about because I don't know anything about quality. No, it's not 100% true. I know, I know a few things about quality, but, but definitely don't want to do a how-to on quality. I really want to talk about quality as a business driver, how we enable it with Agile, right? that kind of stuff. So um, you told me you have a bunch of questions for me that you want to start with. Yeah, I just want to set it up first. So for the folks that are listening, if you didn't check out the videos, Mike did a series of videos on the drivers of business agility, and we're kind of working through them in order. Last time we talked about predictability, now we're talking about quality. So um, if you haven't watched the video, I'd encourage you to check it out. The questions that I'm going to ask Mike are kind of flowing from some of the things he said in the video. Um, but I'm just going to try to recap this and see see how much of this I got right, and you tell okay, me where cool. I'm off. So you define five different types of quality. You talked about intrinsic, which you said was like craftsmanship. Yeah extrinsic which is does it does it really meet the acceptance criteria do what we ex- expect yeah fitness which is something i want to ask about okay market quality and then the illities okay scalability reliability things like that is that okay yeah, it's cool. And, and again, right? I'm not a, like I said, this isn't like my area of deep expertise. So, so when I was doing that video, I'm kind of like just, just riffing based upon experience. So I don't know that that is necessarily an exhaustive list. Um, but I was really glad that you actually had the five that I said. <laughs> I can't remember all the things. I'm prepared, about. man. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Very cool. <laughs> so, so you wanted to talk about fitness. That? Well, yeah, well, I do. I want to kind of ease into yeah. it. First, I want to ask you if you can just sort of explain how, um, Agile can drive quality. You talked a little bit about structure and and things like that. And I can think this goes back to some of our bigger themes, but how do we enable quality? Yeah. So, so if you think about it, right. So, so let's just go with like the simplest, highest level answer. Right. So, so back in the waterfall days, right. We'll use the water waterfall boogeyman for this one. Right. So back in the, back in the um, waterfall days, we basically had like, um, you know, requirements, uh, analysis, design, build, test, deploy, right? That's your classic waterfall. And, and what we know is that our customers don't know exactly what it is they want to build, right? There's, there's going to be some exploratory, um, you know, feedback loops. We'd like them to be at least, right? We don't know exactly how we're going to build it. We don't know exactly what the design is going to look like. And so when we write down a bunch of things early, in the process and we try to hypothesize or, or define exactly what it's going to look like, we're often doing it in a vacuum. Um, so like we don't really have a good sense for are the requirements the right thing to build? Is the solution we've specified the right thing? We might think it's the right thing. We might even all sign off on the fact that it's the right thing. But we don't really know it's the right thing. On the other side of the build, we have the, the did we write the, the software with good quality? Like, did we use good architecture? Um, did, we, did we unit test it? Did we, did we do function testing? Did we do customer acceptance testing, right? All that kind of stuff. So there's kind of like one aspect of quality that is, did we get the requirements right? That's kind of in the fitness stuff. And then there's on the backside of quality, which is, did we build something that actually works regardless of what it is? 
that we've done. And when, when we deliver in this kind of classic waterfall, or even if we take waterfall off the table and we say, okay, we're going to do large batches, right? Larger batches than you might recommend in Agile, right? We, the longer we go before we release something or the longer we go before we test something, we are assuming risk on both sides. We're assuming we're, we're accepting risk that the batch of requirements that we decided to do in this particular, um, you know, a chunk of build is the right set of requirements. And then the more we build before we test, then the more risk we assume on the backside that we built the right thing or that we built it in a way that works. And so what Agile is basically coming along and doing is it's saying, okay, we want to build, we want to define just enough requirements, just enough, do just enough analysis and design so that we can build something within a week or two and make sure that it's validated as we go. And so, so like, let's say you even took, you even said, okay, we're gonna do a mini waterfall in two weeks, right? We're gonna do requirements analysis, design, build, test, all within two weeks. And we're gonna do it totally linearly. linearly. Um, that would be a better um, feedback strategy than a one year waterfall or a three month waterfall or six month waterfall. Okay. Right? But what we try to do with, with Agile is we try to like, just try to do that on steroids, right? We do collaborative requirements definition, right? So if you really think about the sprint planning, it's like a an, an Agile like uh, requirements analysis design build test build thing. Yeah, I can't talk. It's like a it's like analysis and design thing. That's what I want to say. It's okay. like, a, like like sprint planning is like an analysis and design collaboratively, and then you build and test collaboratively. And, you know, maybe you're even getting acceptance criteria from the product owner collaboratively, but then you do a formal thing at the end where you say, okay, are we accepting it or not accepting it? Right. Right. And so the idea is, is that we're, we're building, we're taking all that quality risk, whether it be from requirements definition or whether it be from actual testing, and we're interleaving all those steps in such a way that we mitigate the risk that we're building the wrong thing. And we're mitigating the risk that we're building the thing right, um, like in parallel, all simultaneously. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. It does. I, it's interesting to me how quality and risk get tied together in that. Because I, I guess I think of them as, in my brain, they're slightly separate things. But I can see how leaning on one kind of tips the other. Well, well, so well, so I think it, I think that comes from that comes from the the uh, like our traditional project management thing. I just yeah. did a, just did a talk today with uh, with the PMI group in in DC. And it's always fun. I haven't talked with project managers in a long time. And it wasn't like it was super dynamic. It was more webinar. But um, I definitely try to tailor my message because I came out of project management. So I, I tailor my message to project managers when I can. But I think when we, you know, when we studied uh, PMBOK and got our PMP, like risk was like a thing, right? So what yeah. are the risks for the project? Well, we might have funding risks or we might have resource risks or we might have like all these different kinds of risks. And they all kind of seem outside of the thing that you're actually building. And, and I think in software, one of like the, the biggest set of risks is, are we building something that our customers will buy? Are we building the thing that they want? And are we building defects into it? And, and so you could say that's a quality process. Sure. Right. But, and it is, but, but what we're doing is we're minimizing the risk that we're going to build bad quality into the product. I, okay, and you also said in the in the video that in traditional project management we assume the quality is there, 
which that that kind of like hit me upside the head. That was a, a big statement for me. So usually, so it's been a while since I since I did. See, here's the problem with like doing this so far <laughs> after the talk. Like you know, stuff comes out of my head, and 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 it's usually consistent and right, but I never remember exactly what I said. Well, usually, I want to challenge it though. I I okay. feel like we didn't assume it was there. I felt like we just didn't even bother thinking about it. <laughs> well, well, so okay, so this is where I was going with that. Is that is that what what I think about when I usually go down that path and I say that type of thing, what I'm usually talking about is the triple constraints. Okay. And, and so, and so there was this thing going on for a while and it's been years now, but it's like, so we have a triple constraints, right? And it's, um, you know, scope, time and cost. Right? And the idea of the triple constraints is you get to fix two, but you have to float the third. Right. And the point that I was likely making is that there was, well, before I say that, there was actually like, there's this, people were talking about, well, it shouldn't be the iron triangle. It should be the iron square, right? Where you have scope and time and cost and quality. Right. And the way that I've always looked at it is that quality is a, is an attribute of scope. Right. And, and so what, what I say to people is, is that if, if you are going to try to fix time, cost, and scope, right? Because that's that's the reason why people want Agile so badly is because a lot of the organizations are basically saying, this is what you have to build. This is when you're going to build it. These are the resources you have to build it. And you have people that are on death marches in these projects to try to do whatever they possibly can to the last possible moment right. to do what the organization is asking them to do. What's inherently going to suffer is quality. Yeah. Right. It's going to suffer. Right. And that's why people don't historically pay attention to quality, because because if they got the features built and they did it with on time and they did it within the budget, they get the claim victory. And 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 inevitably what happens in that is we build something that either isn't the right thing or has a bunch of defects in it. Always happens. Well, right? they don't plan for that. They don't. They don't assume. Well, I'm going to make you know twenty percent of my work is going to be mistakes. Well, Nobody sure. puts that in the Gantt chart. Well, for sure, right? And so, and well, but it, it's exacerbated because under under a fixed set of triple constraints, you're gonna make more mistakes. You're gonna make more mistakes. And so, and so, the point that I was trying to make is that is that if you insist on fixing, like like locking the triple constraints, time, cost, and scope. Quality is the only attribute of scope that that the developers have control over without like getting immediately punished for it, right? And so, and so what, what tends to happen is what Agile's kind of come along and said, and I, and I think it started with like the early XP days and the idea of software craftsmanship and tech, tech I can't talk today, um, technical excellence and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the, the quality was non-negotiable. There's a whole thing. Like I, I'm going to say it's like in the, the values behind the manifesto. It's like, it's like developers kind of like deserve to show up and be able to do good work. Yeah. They deserve to be able to, the, the responsible thing to do. I'm not getting the exact quotes right, but you guys get the idea. They, they, it's like, it's almost like it's an obligation on the developers to hold technical excellence as a standard. I'm a professional. I build professional quality software. Cool, right? So now here's the here's the forcing function. If I'm going to fix time, which is what a sprint is, it's a fixed time box, and I'm going to fix cost, that's what a dedicated team is. It is a fixed cost. 
and I'm going to hold quality as a standard, I have to have a mechanism for varying scope. I have to, right? And, and we do that, we do that in Agile, we vary scope in Agile by using a technique like story pointing, right? So we get a relative estimation on the story point, we bring it into, or on the story, we bring it into sprint planning and we negotiate the solution Understanding that time and cost are fixed, quality is fixed. We have to we have to um, deliver the most value in the user story we possibly can within the time and cost constraints. Because if the product owner walks in and says the the user story is three points, your velocity is ten, you know I get three of these things plus one, and this is exactly what it has to be, and this is again everything that I just said is anti agile, right? But but the only thing to vary is, is quality at that point. So it's, what's interesting to me that when you said the thing about the square, that completely threw me for a loop because I've always visualized it in my head, yeah. scope, cost, and time around the triangle and quality is the thing in the center. And when oh, you pull nice. two, the quality falls to the bottom. And I oh, feel like in agile, good. we're like putting a stake in the ground and saying, we will hold this line. We will not yeah. sacrifice quality. Yeah. That is the thing we're not going to bend. And yeah. Huge mindset shift there. For yeah, it's a huge mindset shift, right? And but but here's like kind of another interesting reality, right? And we experience this with building leading agile because um, it doesn't just apply to software, but it's like there are times where you need to go fast enough, right? It needs to be good enough. Like I've got to get something ready, and it has to do these things by the time we're going to get to the trade show, and and or by the time we're going to bring it to market. And, and that's where like the conversation of like technical debt comes in. So it's like, you can't be like super dogmatic. There are going to be times where you're going to fix costs. You're going to fix time. You're going to fix scope and quality is going to suffer. It might be more like an intrinsic quality, like technical debt, poor architecture, things like that. Maybe we sacrifice unit testing or whatever, but, but then that becomes debt in your product. And at some point in time, you have to pay down that debt or the, or the interest you're paying on the debt is going to overwhelm your ability to produce new things, right? And so, so like as we grew leading Agile, like I, I look at it, um, you know, you accumulate organizational debt, right? You accumulate organizational defects. Like you're putting things in market that aren't as strong as you might like them to be. But hopefully you go in, you penetrate the market, you, you, make some, you make some money, you do some things, you reinvest, you pay down the technical debt as you go. So, so if I'm being a purist in this, quality is an absolute. We're professionals. We never build anything less than quality. Pragmatically, there are going to be times where you're going to be going so fast that quality is going to suffer. But you hope that you do it in a way that it doesn't impact the customer's near-term experience. But as a product owner, right, as a business owner, I have to understand that at some point in time, I'm going to pay down that debt or I'm going to risk having a code base that can't be changed anymore. Or I'm going to release this iPhone now, even though it's not going to work for Mike at all, because yeah. if we don't put this stake in the ground, we're going to lose him later on. I mean, that's the thing well, where quality becomes like quality of what? Or fitness well, well sure, life. right? And so, so all of this stuff can be discussed, right? And it's, and it's like, it's what you have to, you know, like there, there's, the, you know, again, right, using Leading Agile as an organization, since, since we kind of went down this path, it's like, 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 we're not the company that we were 10 years ago, 
And our capabilities to deliver on our brand promise are way better now than they were even five years ago. And they'll be way better in 10 years than they are now. And sometimes what I'll ask people is like, should we have not released Leading Agile to Market 10 years ago? Because because what we did do wasn't perfect and we couldn't do everything that right. we aspired to do. Well, if I, if I did that, then like we wouldn't have had all the, the rich learning and we wouldn't have the organization and we wouldn't have ever made any money and I would have had to have a day job and like all these different things, right? So bringing that back to software, there's always a pragmatic reality, right? There's always a pragmatic reality, but you don't want to make that decision unintentionally. You know, okay. it's reasonable It's reasonable as a product owner to, to have a conversation with the team and go, look, um, you know, I want to, f- I, I need to, right now, I need to get these four features in market by the end of the month. Um, I'm actually okay with like a down and dirty implementation. Yeah. You know, because it, this is what it has to do. Definition of success is getting these four features in front of the client so that they can see them. Now, what, but what needs to happen on the backside of that is there has to be a period of, okay, we have to refactor this and we have to bring this into some, some state of stability so that we have a solid foundation on which to build. The problem with that, and the reason why I think people who are like software craftsmen just anchor on that principle so hard is that if you give the product owner the opportunity to either build features fast they can sell or slow down to pay down technical debt, they're almost never going to want to take that cost yeah. until, until it's too late. And then, and then you have like a major refactoring or the, the, the development of the product slows to nothing and you actually can't get any velocity out of the team. All right. I'm going to try to fold two yeah. questions together now with what cool. you just said. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about fitness and then about something else you said. I'm going to try to put them together. You talk about the backlog. You talk about, you talked about breaking down the backlog, things like that. You were just talking about the product owner, whether they're going to pay down the debt or, you know, release the new shiny thing that's, you know, kind of a little bit busted, but it'll work for now. Um, Do we need to be focusing on hygiene? Is it like the things in the backlog, you talked about breaking things down into stuff that could be delivered in a day or two. Is there hygiene of the backlog, hygiene of how we're looking at done, hygiene? I mean, does, do we have to be making that another dimension? Well, help me understand. When, when you say, I, I, I don't know if I know exactly what you mean by hygiene. So okay, so fitness is, if fitness is, does this thing do what we expect? Yeah. I'm thinking about the fact that I have to go further back and say, do we have a clear vision statement? Do we have a backlog? We say that people need a well-formed backlog. Yeah. But there's nobody that looks at that and says, you know, it kind of needs to shower more often or whatever it is about the backlog that's not being yeah. refined in a way that that's well, going to lead to the, the results we want. Well, so, so since you're CST, I'm going to ask you a dogmatic scrum question. Is that not the responsibility of the product owner to maintain the backlog? So this was going to be one of the things I was going to ask. Well, yeah. you could say that it could be the product owner or the product owner and the scrum master, but I don't think yeah. that product owners think about that. Well, okay, right. Okay, so so let me so how I think about this. This is the, this is the weirdest discussion on quality ever, but but it but I think it's I think it's super relevant, right? And it's good. It's a good conversation. So we just bait and switched our entire audience, but I hope everybody's just along for the ride here, right? So so I tend to think about 
Um, it's almost like, I don't know if this is still a thing, right? I don't, I don't read a lot of, of, of stuff anymore. I don't see a lot of agile blogs coming out and, and some, but not, not a ton. There used to be this thing called dual track scrum. that was getting a little bit of, um, it was getting a little bit of traction for a bit, no pun intended, but it was like, it was like, you have like the scrum team that's like operating at the execution level, right? Think pure play scrum. There's a, you know, you know, uh, you have a backlog, you do sprint planning, daily standups, burn down charts, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, review, retrospective, wash, rinse, and repeat, sustainable pace forever. Right. right? Um, then there is, okay, so in a, in a theoretical scrum world, you have the product owner that's responsible not only for producing the backlog, but for maintaining the backlog and to use your word, the hygiene of the backlog, make sure that non-valuable things get taken out. The most valuable things are at the top. Um, that it stays um, strategically aligned, right? All those kinds of things. And so, so if you think about that in a dual track way, the product owner has kind of two jobs, right? They're continuously maintaining and doing good um, uh, maintenance on the backlog. They call it grooming the backlog, right? Whatever that's, that's like what they do is their continuous job. And then they periodically meet with the um, scrum team in sprint planning and they drop stuff into that backlog. Right. Um, sometimes what I think you need to do is I don't I don't think most product owners, this is one of the earliest things I ever wrote, um, is, is I don't think most product owners are actually capable of doing that in a vacuum. And so what I tend to think, I tend to think of the product owner's role as a as a partnership um, it could be with the scrum master. Um, sometimes people from the team need to participate in that um, grooming process. And so sometimes what I'll think about is you have the product owner that's operating in one track, maybe with the scrum master. You have the team that's primarily operating in the execution track, but sometimes people from the team pop up to the other track and participate in the maintenance of the backlog with the product owner. Okay. Now the people that do that, right. Kind of live in two worlds. And you might say, well, they're focused in the course of the sprint and just doing the work of the sprint. Absolutely. Right. So whatever work that they do um, that is outside of the work of the team to participate with the product owner in that and that maintenance activity um, just lowers the velocity of the team. And so okay. there becomes kind of a tension between, OK, constant maintenance of the backlog with whoever needs to be in that conversation. Because you think about the maintenance, right? We, we tend to oversimplify this stuff and we talk about, um, you know, backlog items, like there's these little discrete things and, you know, we pop one in, we take one out. It's all just feature functionality. But, but a really good backlog, in, in my opinion, there's a hypothesis about what you're going to build in terms of feature functionality. But there's also a hypothesis embedded in that about how you're going to build it. Um, I think that there needs to be some understanding in that backlog about what it's dependent upon in the rest of the organization, because we all know dependencies are a reality. And so if we're going to, so, so when I come into sprint planning, what I want to see that product owner show up with is this is what I need. Here's the hypothesis on how I think we're going to build it probably informed by an architect or senior developer or something. And here's what we know about dependencies or cross-cutting concerns. So that when we exit sprint planning, like we actually have a pretty good idea of what it's going to take to get to the end of the sprint successfully and deliver what we committed to. 
But because we don't think about it this way, like what happens in practice is product owner brings some things in, we maybe play some planning poker, we decide what our velocity is. And then we spend the next three days trying to figure out what the hell the story item is. And then we realize that there's external dependencies and that we actually can't get those resources mustered in the next three days in order to be able to build it. And then, so we build some part of the story and then we try to split the story at the end and carry the story over and take partial points. And like, I mean, all the, all the smells and yeah. the scrum you can possibly get. Right. Yep. Um, but, but I think most of those smells come from the fact that most organizations don't have good backlogs. Okay. Right. So let me tell you one more story. Right. So, so I was, um, so Daniel Gulo back in the day, this is, I think when the scrum gathering was in Vegas, I think I went to Vegas for this talk. So he invites me out there and I do this, I do this talk. I got like 500 people in there. It might be one of the largest rooms I've ever spoken in. And I was doing my three things talk. It was like in the early days before, um, before we, I think might've even been before some of the why agile fails stuff. I mean, it was a really early talk. And what I was talking about at the time is what I always talk about is that, is that, you know, the fundamental thing with Scrum is you have to have a complete cross-functional team. You have to have a really clear, well-articulated backlog, and you have to be able to get to a definition of done at the end of the sprint. And, and so I go through this exercise and I describe what does a complete cross-functional team look like? Like, what is a backlog, right? I mean, we can talk about a user story. We can talk about a card, a conversation, a confirmation. I can go to Bill Wake, Mike Cohn stuff around the invest model, right? I can do all that stuff, right? And so you explain all that. And then you, you talk about what, is, what does it mean to get the done at the end of a sprint? And I'm not even talking about really Scrum. I'm talking about the preconditions to be able to even do Scrum. And ask a room of 500 people are at a Scrum gathering, like who has teams like this? Who has backlogs like this? Who can produce this kind of definition of done? And I Almost want to say like, literally like five people in the room yeah. <laughs> said this. It's, it, but here's the thing, right? This is the thing that's maddening to me, Dave. It's like, it's like you can't do Scrum unless you have a well-groomed. Like there's no way to successfully exit a sprint planning meeting with any kind of clarity on what you're going to be able to deliver over the next two weeks. Okay. So exactly. Without, without having your backlog room at that level of specificity. And I'm going to talk about food now and try to make the parallel because okay. we haven't done that yet. Cool. Cool. When I'm talking about hygiene and, and when I'm thinking about quality and you're talking yeah. about stuff at an organizational systematic level now, yeah. I'm thinking like, okay, this team, they know how to make a sandwich. They make a really good sandwich, Yeah. but nobody cleaned the counter for the past month and there's mold growing on it and the fridge is broken. Well, so how long do you think that sandwich? Okay, so let's say I'm in a restaurant and I'm doing that. Yeah. Right? So sure, right? You can produce some sandwiches for a bit and people love them. They're really great sandwiches. And then the bread starts tasting bad and, the, right. and, the, and they start getting sick from the meat or whatever, right? How long does that count as a really good sandwich? Okay, but whose job is it to look at the kitchen and go, dude, you can't make food in here? Well, well, okay, so so that's okay, not the so, PM. I've never worked at a restaurant, so so I don't know, right? But but usually going back to what I'm saying is that is that it has to be the product owner who's the champion of that. Period. Okay, so okay, so if you're talking about okay, so you put so even talk, more stuff on the product owner's plate. There's okay, so, so busy already, all right? So there's there's I'm I'm trying to explore your metaphor here with it, and so just for our sorry. listening <laughs> audience, right? This is what Dave does to me every time he asks me orthogonal questions, and I'm I'm trying to figure out. But that's what makes that's what makes the magic. It's all good, right? So so there's amount of hygiene that you have to use to make sure that your backlog is good. Yeah. Right. But then there's there's the hygiene of the code base. Right. Right. So, yeah. so again, right. 
weird metaphors here, but you can bring in all the best food, yep. right? Let's say your product owner is even doing the best stuff possible, right? And they're doing all that grooming that we just talked about. And then your team is um, leaving defects in the code, not doing test-first development, not continuing yeah. integrating and deploying, right? All that Sloppy. stuff. Well, okay, so so it's the team's job to make that, right? I mean, that's what the manifesto is basically saying. It's it's like a rights and responsibilities kind of document, right? This is how we're going to operate. We're going to be, you know, um, people and in interactions over processes and tools. And again, I'm going to probably like misquote the oh, you got it. agilist part. <laughs> you got it. Right? <laughs> can't say this stuff off the top of my head. I can't do the. T- I know there's 12 of them, but I can't recite <laughs> them all. But that's the reason why that stuff's there, right? Yeah. It's a little bit like going back to the project manager conversation. It's like there's a code of ethics. Like whose job is it to make sure that the project manager isn't telling lies on the project plan? Well, apparently nobody. <laughs> it's the pro- well, well so we have a professional ethics problem at that point, right? Well, um, I don't know though, but you just said all those people, only five of them had a definition of done that actually who is worked. It, whose job, when you go to the doctor, whose job is it to make sure you're not misdiagnosed? It's the doctor's job. Like that's like the definition of a professional. But right? so many doctors it's, misdiagnose. Well, well, okay. Now we don't have a quality problem. We have a professional ethics problem, right? And, and that's why people, you know, getting back like to the point, right? It's like, and this is what's so jacked up about, about everything that we talk about. It's like, it's like, why don't project managers follow professional ethics? Well, they don't follow professional ethics because they're under so much pressure to perform, under so much stress, right? With so many things that are beyond their control. They're just doing everything they can to survive. Like, why does a doctor misdiagnose so much? Because in the medical machinery that we have, they have 15 minutes to see a patient. They don't know who you are. And they, and they make a guess based upon generalities and oftentimes misdiagnose you. Yeah. Right? It's the same thing with Scrum. Why don't teams, why don't teams pay attention to software craftsmanship? Well, because, because the, the conditions that are created drive them to produce crap code so that they don't get, they don't get beat up every day. Right. And so and so that's why that's part of the reason why I started with like the series I did before these like six business drivers was I don't remember what we called it anymore, but it was like the physics of agile transformation, like things that have to be true. Right. And so one of the things that has to be true is that capacity and demand have to be brought into balance. Like why did why did. you know, I don't remember if it was Schwaber or whoever the guys, they're basically like the team gets to decide how much gets pulled in the sprint. Yeah. The product owner gets to set the backlog, but the team gets to decide how much gets pulled in the sprint because the team gets to break down the work. The team gets to decide who's going to do it. The team gets to decide how it's going to get done. The team gets to decide the level of technical quality because if the team can establish a stable velocity against a known backlog, and we're committed as an organization not to overcommit the team, then the team is put into a position where it can pay attention to technical excellence. And they're not pressured to do things faster than they can do at a sustainable pace, right? And that's what, see, I'm telling you, this is what is problem. And this is, this is why I beat this drum as hard as I do. This is why like our industry is such a mess. It's like, it's like, I don't know that anybody read the books that were written in the early 2000s that, that explained the theory. 
Like if you haven't read Poppendick's work, if you haven't read Coburn's work, if you haven't read the early Ken Schwaber stuff, I don't can't pass judgment on the later stuff, the early Jeff Sutherland stuff, the early stuff from Jeff DeLuca, the early stuff from Jim Highsmith, right? All these guys that were writing about, in effect, the underlying theory. Like right. my personal, my personal favorite is Coburn. I think Coburn does the best job at communicating deeply the underlying theory. Right, as powerful as um, you know, the work that Schwaber and Sutherland did with the Scrum Alliance and bringing the CSM and give Jim Cundiff a nod on this one as well. Right, right, bringing that to the mass market. Um, like what it did is it is it basically said, you know, here's a two day class. This is everything you need to know. Go off and be a Scrum master. Right, and like people don't deeply, deeply. And I'm not saying that you don't cover that in class and that there's not reference. No, but we have to be stewards of making room for quality. Well, it sounds to me like that's where you're going is where we have well, to create a space for it. Well, well, exactly. Right. But, but that's, but the, the broader point that I'm making is that this is what those early authors were writing about. Yeah. Like how do you create a space for software craftsmanship? How do you create a space where the product owner can, can do their job and work their craft? Right. And you can't, and you can't build a quality product at a sustainable pace when the organization is putting so much external pressure on you to build things, right? Now, the, the challenge is, is, that, is that agiles often go to the other extreme. It's like, well, this is what we're gonna do. This is how we're gonna do it. With, and it's almost like, I know I'm being some hyperbole here, but it's like, it's almost like they've just said, oh, there's actually no business that I need to take consideration. There's no business drivers or constraints that I have to operate within. Just let me show up and do my code. Right. And, and that's not the truth either, right? The, the truth is, is the product owner and the team have to be negotiating with the business to say, you know, if we're going to build a high quality product, which means we're building the right thing that a customer will use that's suitable to purpose, that we're doing something with high intrinsic quality, high extrinsic quality, satisfies all the scalability and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, right? The ability stuff, right? If we're going to do that, right? If we value that, what kind of conditions need to be created in the organization? This is why. So, so I'll tell you another fascinating thing. You got me all ramped up here, Dave. I right? know. I got you wound up. And don't, right. we got to save space for the other questions. I know you so. wanted to ask, So we got like eight yeah. minutes before you, you want to get to the, your last yep. bit. So yep. That's cool, right? Yep. But this is the reason why, like, I don't run around and do workshops and things like that on, on good testing practices. And I don't run around and do workshops on what good metrics are. I mean, people do that, right? People on our team do that all the time, right? It's fine. Yeah. Right. But here's here's my problem. I used to walk into in the early days when it was really just me or, and even me and a small handful of people we were just starting leading agile. Like like I have a degree in computer science. I've written some code like I couldn't tell you the first thing about how to test drive or write a unit test, let alone in a modern language. OK, like I can't tell a tester how to do their job. Right? These guys know how to do their jobs. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like somebody, you might know, need, the theory that their stuff is based on. Well, they might need they might need somebody to pair with them or to teach them a technique or something like that that they're not familiar with. Or, but what what I find most of the time that people need is they need to know it's important, and they need permission to do it. Right, and then like I could sit in a room and go, look, we need to be able to do a build every night. And they're like, well, we can't do a build every night, right? Because it takes three weeks to do a build. Well, why does it take three weeks to do a build? Well, I got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. Well, what could you automate? And, you know, you just drive the question. Well, we could do this, could do this. And like, and like, I've never worked with a team that couldn't produce at least a build a day. 
for somebody to test. You know, most teams given an, enough time and permission can figure out how to do continuous integration. Right. I don't need to tell them how to do that. There's people in this world that can tell them how to do that. The problem is they need to know they have permission to do it. They need to know why they're doing it, why it's important. They need to have permission to do it. And they need to know they're going to be supported by the organization to do it. And so that's why I run around so much and talk about principles. So, yeah, so you're listening to a podcast. Mike's talking about quality and we're doing nothing but talking about project management, organizational design, all the same stuff Mike talks about all the time. But we're talking I don't know. About, I think this one went a little deeper in some areas. Well, maybe, right? But, we're, but, but, but the reality is, is, if, is you have to understand what quality is, what it means, why it's important, what your trade-offs are, all those kinds of things. You have to understand why people don't care because these are professionals. You have to really like whose job is it to make sure this person's doing their job? Like, do we really want to have a world in which the professionals that we trust to build mission critical software have to have an external monitoring agent around them so that they're doing their job? Like, why don't we hold them to a standard, which is what the software craftsmanship world is trying to do, but then create the conditions where they can be professionals. Like, like I, I've yet to meet, and I'm sure they exist. I've, I've heard rumors, right? I'm sure there's people out there that are in developer jobs that don't know how to code, but that is not most of the people that I've ever talked to. Most well, of them, like, like literally, okay, so, so I, I talk in this podcast a lot about Donald Turner, who is a, uh, who's our lead engineer. We have a small team of engineers that build product for leading agile. I've literally in the four or five years I've worked with that guy, I have never once ever like told him how to continuously integrate or how to do testing or whatever, like, like the platforms he showed, like no idea, right? I couldn't know, but I don't know. And, and, but what I told him when I hired him is I said, look, um, we're working with my money. Um, I want a product that is high quality and never breaks. If we ever put something in to production that I don't like, I want to be able to roll it back instantly. <coughs> and he said, okay. And I'm telling you, unless it was like something to like a off OAuth server or something like that, that was literally beyond his control. And I'm, there might've been a way to mitigate that. I don't know, but I'm telling you, our system has never been down. He's but never, you created a space a for yeah, him I, to be well, able to do that. You have permission, and it is the most important thing to me that this is, it never breaks, is infinitely able to be rolled back, will scale with us no matter how big we get. So whatever it takes to build an infrastructure that will never underperform, yeah. do it. So right? you weren't standing behind his head, snapping your fingers, going twice the work and half the time. Come on, buddy. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. On how to do that. Right. Yeah. And so, and so I'm not making, again, right. I want to be really clear, like for all the technical trainers and things like that out there. And the, it's like, I'm not saying that people don't need to learn these skills. I'm just saying is that that is not their primary problem. Most of the time, it is not a skills problem. I don't think it's a professionalism problem. What I think it is a problem of is that we are unable to balance capacity and demand. We put too much pressure on people and we cause them to compromise their professional ethics. And, and so some of the agile response to that is, I will not compromise my professional ethics no matter what, right? And I'm going to do a revolution if you make me incur any technical debt as we go, right? <laughs> the truth is in the middle, yeah. right? We as, we as leaders of organizations have to understand that there is a trade-off. And if we ask to go faster than the team can do with high quality, we know that these ethics are going to be compromised. 
We might accept that for a period, but we are going to accumulate technical debt. At some point, inevitably, whether we choose to or not, we'll have to be paid down or we will go out of business, yeah. period, right? Or we say, it's worth it for me to keep this code base healthy forever to make sure that we're always building it right and we're always doing the right things. And I'm going to accept the fact that I'm gonna put features into market a bit slower it could be argued, right? And, and like an XP purist would argue that you can actually put that you with pair programming and unit testing, there's, there's so much safety in the code base that you can actually go faster. The problem, the problem with that is, is that most of us aren't working in code bases that were built from the ground up that way. Yeah. And so don't know how to go slower. Right. Yeah. So, so that's, and that's why to me, it was so important because this thing with Donald is the first thing that I ever um, built from scratch. The first thing I ever paid to have built. And I'm working with all these companies that have built software the wrong way and are paying the price of it. And they have to come and hire us to come in and help them fix it. And I'm just like, I never want to be in a situation where I have to hire myself to come and fix myself. So let's, <laughs> let's do this right the first time, right? This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this has been a really spectacular Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance podcast. This well, there you go, man. It's, a, it's always magic, man, when we get on the <laughs> and talk. We should do this more often. And it's a good segue to the, to the big question. So this is an actual question. Okay. That came out of a conversation I had with some some coworkers of mine. Oh, okay, so leading agile peeps. Yeah, so we were talking okay. about the training stuff. So I'm I'm asking it because in yeah. every every PO class I teach, one of the things people always say is I don't know how to say no. Like okay. product owners that are afraid to say to managers, no, you can't have the thing you want. Yeah, and we were talking about the training stuff, yeah. and um, the question I'm going to ask you is, when people are going to tell you no. How do you want to be told no? Or what is the best way to tell you no? Because let me give you the real situation. So as we start up the well, training so thing. So, so you're putting me on the hot seat, right? You're putting me on public record. I know, you're but I'm going to give you a second. No I'm going to tell you the backstory. So I was told, ease up on the <laughs> podcast, work on the training stuff. Don't do podcasts for a while. And the very next day you said, let's do a new podcast. So I'm like, yes, that'd be awesome. And then I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> well, okay. So, so, okay. So, okay. Valid question, right? Yeah. So, so, so I want what I want. I know. Right. And I want everything. <laughs> cool. I don't want to make trade-offs, right? I am a both and guy all day long. Yeah. So, okay. So the simple answer to that question is you go, okay, Mike, um, my backlog is X in training and you want me to do X in marketing. What are your choices, right? You either slow down training and slow down marketing. You take some of the training out and put the marketing in. You take the marketing out, you put the that, that's just, that's just management. Right. Um, but, but if you recall the way we had that question is I said, I said, what would it be like if we could just literally spend an hour on the phone and that was your only commitment? Yeah. And we worked it right? out. Yeah. Well, well, but, but so there, it becomes a theory of constraints thing. So in a, in a constraint, right. So let's say Dave is the constrained resource, right. We can either, we can either um, elevate the constraint, which means I can go get two Dave's or I can slow the system down to the pace of the constraint, which is means I don't get what I want as fast as I want it. Or there's this thing in lean called elevating the constraint, which basically means is make it as simple as possible on Dave to do the podcast so that I get the marketing and I get as little impact as possible to the training stuff. And what we decided was is that we were going to release you from having to edit anything. So you don't have yep. to cut anything out of this talk. We're going to flip it over the wall and let marketing do all the bumper stuff and all the publishing stuff. So literally you show up for an hour, you record it, you send it over, done. Yeah. 
We'll do it on a Saturday morning. We'll do it late at night. We'll do it yep. whatever. We don't have to do a ton of them. We can do them at our own pace, right? And that was the trade-off. So what we did is we exploited the constraint to make it as easy as possible on you with as little impact as possible to what you're doing on the training side. Right. And, and, if, and, if, and if you guys even came to me even with that and said, okay, here's the deal. Um, you know, what we're doing in training right now is so important. I can't even afford an hour every two weeks. Right. I would have been like, okay. And I would have gone and got our videographer and I would have done something else. Right? It would have been nearly as lively. It wouldn't have been nearly as interesting, but it would have, it would have checked the box. Right. So I would have pivoted my solution. So yes. And I, and I'm, I feel lucky that I can have those kind of conversations with you and with Jim and whoever, there's a lot of people that don't know how to have those conversations. So as the the executive, like if Donald's going to say no, how do you want Donald to say no? Is there a certain way that he can present that to you? Well, so, so, I, so we're not a great example, right? Because, because I hear no all the time. My organization tells me no all the time, right? So, so what I want, if I'm told no, what I would rather have is, okay, what do I need to invest? What dollars do I need to invest to be able to get what I want? Okay. Is it possible, right? I asked the question to my team, like we're, we're going to build a, a training. It's not a training asset. It's more like a learning development asset, a knowledge-based asset um, over 2021. And I said, if I want to spend a million dollars, could I solve this problem? And the reality was, is there's critical constraints within the organization that if we don't take work off of them, there's no amount of money that I can spend to go make this happen. Can't hire people, can't whatever, because it requires Dennis Stevens or Brian Sonnegaard or me or you, right? And so there's no amount of money I can spend. So I have to either go figure out how to solve the constraint problem or I can't have what I want, right? That's the job of a leader. And, and so like some of my earliest experiences with this is I had a, I was working with a, um, with an organization and we, we came up in this waterfall world. We came up with a, a big Gantt chart and we understood scope. We understood time. We understood cost. Client comes back and says, we want to move in the date two weeks or two months it was at the time. And I'm like, well, like, okay, cool. So let's walk through it. Um, do I have money to go hire any more people? No. Um, do we want to assume your people's estimates are wrong? No. Do we want to assume that um, that the scope can be reduced? No. Do we want to make your people do death marches and work twice as many hours? No. Well, then there's no way. Yeah. So right? is it is it about presenting options then and just saying like what? Well, it's it's well it's about we it's about being prepared with data. It's about giving options. It's about managing trade offs. Right. Because nobody wants to hear a no. But if you're dealing, if, if that leader isn't willing to tell me that we can take out scope, that we can can negotiate um, resource capacity, that we can add additional like whatever. If, if I've got no flexibility. Like you, there's no way. Right. It's like I go back to these yeah. physics. Sorry, it's physics. Right. No way. You can't fold space and time. You can't. Yeah. You just can't. Right. And, and I, well, but here's now, here's the caution to, to any project manager might be listening. And then I think we need to wrap up because I got to yeah. give you this thing. But, um, but the reality is, is that oftentimes, and this is, this will be a negative note to end on. Um, <laughs> oftentimes the reality is, is that having those kinds of conversations while high in professional ethics and morality yeah. is low on keeping yourself permanently employed. And, and I got to the point with clients at times, I, I would ask, I said, so tell me what the political nature of this organization is. Is it better to say yes and to fail or to say no 
honestly and tell somebody what you can actually get done. And I've had literally people tell me that it is better to say yes and to fail because the culture there was you were better off to say yes and to just, and just to fail in a year than to deal with the consequences of saying no now and managing the, the organization's expectations. That's sad. It's really sad. No, I agree with you. It's sad, but that is the problem that we're facing. And so we can talk all day long about story points and how to do scrum and quality, yeah. all this different shit, right? But the reality is, is that until we solve that kind of class of problem and bring capacity and demand into balance, yeah. And so, and so that's what we've chosen to do as an organization. That's why we don't do, I mean, I know you do scrum training, but we don't go into organizations and go, hey, we're going to transform you by giving everybody a CSM, right? Because right? it just doesn't solve the problem. It's, a, yeah. it's an appropriate enabler. It helps, but there's so many other things in an enterprise that need to be fixed. Yeah. So on that, I got to go. This was great, man. This was a really yeah. fun interview. Thank you for doing yeah. this. <laughs> well, well, so since you apparently have so much time in your schedule, we should get another one. No, on I, so I'm, I'm carving out time for this. Like, this isn't something that I wanted. That's the other thing is I don't ever want to turn something like that down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, there's a limited amount of time in the day. You know, there I want is, to use it the best likes, possible right? so, way. So it's all about making your trade-offs explicit. Good, yeah. That was a good note to end on. That's a way better note to end on. There's yeah. always trade-offs to be made. You got to make them explicit and everybody needs their break. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Cool. You got it, man. See you. All right. Bye. See you.